Welcome to Oh God, What Now? The Wim Hof of political podcasts, jumping into the freezing water other pods daren't go near. I'm Ros Taylor. On today's show, we look at Jeremy Hunt's first proper budget. He's finally noticed that parents can't afford childcare, but will this plan make it any easier? And will the real Rishi Sunak please stand up? Is he a technocrat, a tech bro, or just a very, very ambitious man? Plus, in the extra bit for Patreon backers, after Hugh Grant spared no disdain at the Oscars, are Britons too rude when we go abroad, or do we just beat ourselves up about it? Let's meet the panel. Hannah Fern is a columnist for the iPaper. Hello, Hannah. Hi. The Commons passed the illegal migration bill on Monday, and it's it's just astonishing how fast this highly controversial legislation has been pushed through compared to, say, the wrangling over Brexit. How have they done it? I mean, very, very speedy. A week between the announcement of the policy and the second reading being passed. And uh, that allowed, I think, two days of committee of the whole House time. This is really, really quick. And the only real voice of opposition we got to hear was Yvette Cooper. So there wasn't really full discussion and debate, as we might expect, especially from such a contentious policy. But the really interesting thing, I noticed Institute for Government were talking this week about how this is not actually a one-off. It's not being rushed through simply because they're concerned about opposition or they're desperate to push this through because uh, you know it represents where they stand as a, as a government right now. This is actually part of a trend of policy being under-scrutinised, pushed through and then dumped on the Lords. Now the Lords are doing the job that our elected MPs ought to be doing in mm. scrutinising this. Um, and that the expectations of ministers now is that, that they should not be, you know, exposed, I suppose is the word, to proper scrutiny on their work. And I think we should all raise a few eyebrows about that. Yeah, I also worry that we've been a bit sidetracked by the whole Gary Lineker and BBC social media rules and maybe have looked enough at the bill itself. Do you think maybe there's been an element of that as well? It is more interesting to the general member of the public to think about what's going on with their favourite sports presenter, Lineker, than the kind of complex minutiae of government policy wrapped up in the bill. But actually, I know there's been a lot of argument that this has been a distraction that's problematic because it means people don't understand how dangerous the bill is, how discriminatory it is, how it has, all the moral questions that we know it raises. I don't agree, personally. I think this has been a really important moment about pushback and um, the BBC having to capitulate is really an example of um, a moment of surprise, I think, about uh, how the, the general public do feel. I think that we do have a, a, a modicum of humanity left. I think we should be positive about this. I think it's a, a hopefully a, it signals a moment where we can take some hope, maybe. <laughs> Dare we say it? Hope. Has, has it been that long since you've used so that long. word? That you're like, so what, long. What is that What word? is that feeling? <laughs> I can't remember it. Let's say it's hope. <laughs> well, that laugh you just heard was obviously Ian Dunt, who's been following the bill closely. And you're the author, of course, of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, out on the 13th of April, I believe. That's true. That's a very precise date. You praised a few Tory MPs for speaking out against the bill, including Caroline Noakes and Theresa May. But in the end, there were dozens of abstentions and not a single Tory actually voted against the bill. Why couldn't they bring themselves to do it? Okay, well, there's, there's a charitable way of looking at it and then there's a less charitable one. The charitable way of looking at it is that sort of MPs in that position will often think to themselves, I can do some work behind the scenes on this stuff and I can sort of work away at the slavery provisions, I can work away over here and, and you know, we'll do that in the committee stage which, which follows and that, which will start happening now that the second reading's over. 
And in a more subtle way, we can start passing these messages up to the Lords. We demonstrate there's a problem at committee in the Commons. The Lords picks up on it. And then the Lords, actually, that's where they can put down the amendments. And they can win those amendments in the Lords because the government doesn't have a majority there. That's the charitable way of looking at it. The uncharitable way is to say that the moderate or more liberal wing or whichever way you want to see it, I mean, fucking laughable that we say that Theresa May is on the liberal wing of anything, let alone the Conservative <laughs> Party, but whatever. That's how, that's how off the scale they've gone, that she is now sort of their social conscience. Um, just won't stand up for themselves. And we've seen it before. I mean, we saw it, for instance, you remember when they passed the, the, the bill on elections to basically say, oh, we can just call elections whenever we like without anything from Parliament. And you get people standing up you know, whether it's William Ragg or whoever, and just saying, like, this is diabolical and blah, blah. Not a fucking single M- Tory MP voted for, or voted for the Lord's Amendments, which would have given the Commons some role in when, in when an election takes place. You don't see that on the right of the party, right? If you, you know, you go talk to, you know, Bill Cash or whatever. You know, these guys rebel. They rebel and they've managed to pull their party dramatically to the right over the last few years because they're willing to demonstrate that they'll follow through. The the post-purge Tory party, I don't think, has that degree of confidence on its more liberal wing. I say liberal in a sort of hushed and slightly sardonic way. you know. And, so, and therefore, the party keeps on drifting to the right. So it is a significant problem. So they're not prepared to put their votes where their mouth is? They're prepared to put their unvotes where their mouth is. And that, at the moment, is the most that we can expect from them. Our guest this week is a veteran of the think tank Demos and the Chief Social Purpose Officer at the University of the Arts London. Polly McKenzie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I know you're going to get asked this a lot. What does a Social Purpose Officer do exactly? Well, um, (laughs) so it's a great question. I mean, the simple answer is that I'm in charge of maximising the positive impact that the university has in the world. But there's a sort of growing movement to put things on what you call the C-suite, the like the sort of top executive board of of all sorts of organisations that are jobs like chief impact officer. That's Prince Harry's job. I'm not sure if he actually does anything, but, you know, there, there are other really very effective chief impact officers. There are chief sustainability officers, kind of a combination of those things. And it, it's part of a wider, I guess, purpose movement which recognises that organisations should not just sort of stay in their lane, do their thing and let government and public services and taxes pick up the burden of everything else. But that actually all organisations need to think like citizens, think about their responsibilities and their impacts, whatever they are. So that might be about the obvious externality of carbon. We have an aggressive timetable by which we, we as a university, but like we as, you know, a species need to fix the carbon problem. But, you know, there's also the footprint that we have as a, as an employer. There's the impact we have on we're a creative arts university. We train people for for film, for fashion. Those people are going out and shaping their industries. And those industries are just as much problems as all of the other industries. So we want to be an agent of change. And, and that's 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 my job. But it's actually a job I think every organization should have to really think about the ripple effects, the impacts of your operations and make sure they are net positive, not net negative. It's not an all-glitzy, sexy, big-bang budget, the Teeth Mayor Ben Houchen warned us yesterday. And I miss the days when Gordon Brown was Chancellor. (laughs) (laughs) And there was no suggestion that a budget should be sexy or glitzy. Still, there was a big announcement in the form of £4 billion more for childcare and various bribes and prods to try to get more Britons back to work. Hidden in the small print is the fact that we're expecting the biggest two-year fall in disposable incomes since records began. 
But on the other hand, we're going to avoid recession this year. Just. Polly, we know Britain has a problem with O50s dropping out of the workforce. Uh, when I talk to experts about it, they tell me there's no single reason for that. Uh, some people don't need to work. Others don't want to work. Still others can't work because they're sick or they have caring duties. What sort of things is Jeremy Hunt planning to do to tackle this? And, and are they going to make a difference? I'm pleased, actually, the government is starting to think about how you might create a more comprehensive work service that would offer help and advice to people that isn't just, unless you do what I say, we will sanction your benefits. And it's been interesting, you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen the government kind of wising up to this problem of people getting further and further away from the labour market and then saying, we're going to do something on benefit sanctions. But if if somebody's not claiming benefits... Mm. That, that literally <laughs> benefit sanctions is not going to change their behaviour at all. And it was a really weird disconnect. What's good is that the government is uh, talking about changing the work capability assessment, abolishing the work capability assessment, which is um, a, a really extraordinarily difficult, traumatic thing for so many sick and disabled people to go through before they get benefits. But the downside is we don't know what they're going to replace it with. And we don't really know. They're talking about tightening up the sanctions regime. And increasing evidence is that sanctions just don't get people back into high quality work quickly. They mostly just drive people away from the benefit system completely. But the the new measures to try and reach out to those uh, over 50s, which include being a bit more generous with pension allowances, which is particularly a thing in the NHS. There's this perverse thing where a whole bunch of consultants basically would become poorer if they went to work. And I think we can all agree that's a really bad situation. <laughs> uh, you talk about marginal tax rates, but like being poor if you go to work is a pretty bad thing. So they're going to make some changes there. I, I, increasingly, you see this from the Labour Party as well, um, talking about the idea of there being an actual job service that helps everybody get to the next step in their career instead of us thinking of that what we've got is job centres that you only access if you're basically a, somehow a bad person who doesn't have a job. Changing that mindset, recognising that most people want to work, they want to get on, they just need the help and advice, is I think that's the really positive thing. But at the same time, I was kind of uncomfortable with the language around this because Hunt was talking about boot camps for over 50s to get them back to work. But on the same, by the same token, the pension pot allowances, which is what you were talking about, to encourage consultants especially to stay in work, it will absolutely benefit the richest. So isn't what we're seeing here a kind of carrot for the richest and what feels uncomfortably like a stick for the poorest? It's a terrible phrase, isn't it? Like boot camp. Uh, what, like, here's what I don't know yet is skills are a good thing. Are they using boot camp to appeal to the sort of Daily Express tendency and like whatever, get get their policy passed by making it sound tough? Or is it that they're actually going to like brutalise over 50s by shouting at them? I hope it's the former, but I mean, you never know. But there's a huge number of skills that people are are needing to pick up. And they, you know, they've also been making progress this week with the, uh, I keep thinking it's the lifelong learning entitlement, but it's not. It's the lifelong loan entitlement, which sounds much more rubbish, don't you think? Um, <laughs> but still, it's the lifelong learning bill, which introduces the lifelong loan entitlement, which will change the way you basically university funding works, but also so that people over the course of their lifetime can kind of come back in and out rather than having to do, you know, one degree done when you're 21 and assume you never learn again. So I think they're edging towards some good ideas here. And sure, they add a 
a sprinkle of um, nonsense rhetoric from time to time. Hopefully that's all it is. Ian, one of the reasons that um, Hunt is trying to get people back to work is that unemployment is still very low. There are still about a million vacancies in the economy and there have been for quite a long time. So firms are struggling to recruit the people they need. And we've got We've got fewer people coming from the EU, which is what we wanted um, because of Brexit. <laughs> but it turns out there's still plenty of inward migration, isn't there? Where are people coming from now and what, what jobs are they getting? Uh, they're coming from everywhere else. Um, the, best, the first person to read on this is Jonathan Porters. He's been covering it very well. Jonathan Porters is no friend of Brexit and a very good friend of immigrants. Um, but has nevertheless been sort of saying, look, we just went underwent some of the most significant changes to our immigration system that we've seen for ages. And they were primarily liberal changes in that there was a real reduction in the kind of income that you would need for a company to be able to say you can come work for us. I mean, it currently stands at 25,600. I mean, that's really quite low. So it's basically mm. barred, what they've done is they've really barred anyone in low pay jobs, which is why you see so many problems in, for instance, hospitality. But the kind of people you're getting over is sort of software developers. You're, you're getting quite a lot of management consultants, actually, because I just feel the people of Britain felt we just don't have enough management consultants. We need <laughs> to bring them in. That, yeah. yeah, exactly. We could use much more. And you look at the kind of countries that people are coming from i mean some of the stuff is is kind of ludicrous so you know the seasonal schemes the seasonal sort of farming schemes you often find people from eastern europe coming now you just spread your net out wider so they're primarily coming from places like kyrgyzstan tajikistan indonesia and nepal and you're like okay that's fine i mean the number of zimbabweans coming has risen by 25 times which i think honestly we should have people going around knocking on doors of leave voters and saying i hope that you're glad that you voted to get rid of polish people and get lots and lots of zimbabweans because I think this is exactly what you intended. There's some oddness in the effect that this is having. So it, it's, it's more than made up for the European shortfall that we had. However, when you look at what the OBR was saying today, it's, it's kind of weird because the visas are not all work visas. So last year, 20% of them were work visas. 30% of them were, fa- were uh, study visas and 50% were non-work, non-study. That includes lots of people from Hong Kong, from Ukraine, etc., now that's quite odd because until now what you always had until Brexit was this assumption that immigrants who came over were typically of working age and Brits you know we had an elderly population blah 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 so you could expect all those guys to go into the market if you've got a sudden shake up like this we don't know that that will continue to be the case and the OBR are changing some of its assumptions other people look at it and go fine people are going to come over on a study visa they're going to want to work afterwards they typically do so they'll stay and this will all shuffle out but at the moment because we've changed the demographics very quickly very violently and very extensively we don't know the kind of impact that that's going to have on the labour market. Is this a case of, you know, global Britain basically meaning we, we go as far as we need to to find people to do the jobs that nobody in Britain do. currently <laughs> wants to do? No, it's, it's, isn't it the opposite now? We, we've flipped it because now it's like, no, we're going to find all the, all the jobs you do want to do. We're going to spread the net as far wide. It's actually the jobs you don't want to do that we're not going to. But, but this is the thing, that there is a list of, you know, you can chuck those jobs onto a shortage list and then suddenly people will start coming in. I mean, you're certainly seeing it used very effectively by the NHS at the moment. The NHS is bringing in people from all over the place. You're even seeing it in education. So really, what it is, is a massive lobbying operation by various sectors to go, like, please, we are really, we're really sore here, put it on the shortage list. And you can see very quick changes in the immigration system in a way that you just wouldn't have seen before. There are also plans to raise the state pension age to 68 by the mid-2030s. The plans to raise it in France, 
have been going pretty badly, it has to be said. Uh, yes. There are more and more strikes. The dustbins in Paris are not being emptied. It's getting smelly. Do you think there'll be a similar backlash here or have we just become immured to being told we must, we must work longer? I don't think there will. The French are much better at this than we are. Um, there was a real breaking of the barrier, I thought, under James Pennell when Labour was in power. And he's very interesting. If you see his sort of interview with uh, the Institute for Government of talking about how that was done, he's like, people always say to you, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. Just like they say, you can't raise taxes, you can't raise taxes. People won't put up with it. Mm. And it was like, but... I'm almost quoting him verbatim. He's just like, you know, you introduce it once here and then it's once there, another six months later, and suddenly it goes from the from the front page to the business pages, you know, further back in the newspaper. And then people go, oh, yeah, of course, of course they're raising the, the, the age. And that was the process that happened then. They managed to get away with it. And I think they'd be able to get away with it now, especially since it's so deeply imbued in us now that when you mention retirement to most people, certainly of my age or even sort of 10 years older, they go, well, of course, we all understand no one's ever going to be able to retire. <laughs> like, that was a thing that used to happen. You know, that, that we're never going to get anything like that. So I, I don't think that they're going to they're going to get much kickback. I do think you're right. I think anyone under the age of about 45 has always, since they're in their early working years, have just mm. been accepted that this is I'm going to have to find a way to do something like this until I'm basically in my mid 70s. Because that Pernell thing was 20 years ago. Exactly. Right? And, you know, for someone that's 40, that's the whole of your working life yeah. was taking place within the context of, yeah, they're going to keep but, on... Reg- but it's also, like, a good thing, right? That's my view anyway. We're going to live for 100 years on average pretty soon, uh, you know, assuming that the government doesn't continue to... You haven't seen my in burger interest. intake, you, which is quite you, extensive. Uh, OK, right? we collectively, <laughs> not you specifically... Uh, Ian is wearing a T-shirt that said "Extinction Beckons." It turns out he's uh, he's talking about literally only himself. Um, but uh, you know, it, it's an opportunity, I think. Um, and uh, Phoenix Group, some big insurer, they, they've just set up a new think tank to you know focus on the hundred-year life. It's an opportunity for us to like spread out the learning and the earning and the care in our lives, because you know if if you assume that you're just sort of learning and developing for twenty years. You know, working for 40, if you stop at 60, and then what, you're going to be alive for another 40? Mm. Just sort of, what, bumming around? Like, maybe going on a cruise? That sounds rubbish. Uh, Like, Mm. actually, thinking what we shouldn't be sort of requiring people to do is, you know, like, 50-hour weeks of manual labor until they're 92, right? That's obviously a bad idea. But actually, thinking much more creatively and flexibly about work... Um, and enabling people to ma- match together, you know, flexible work, um, remote work, part-time work, contracting into later life. It's actually much better than this kind of assumption that you should just sort of stop and, and that then your only role as a pensioner is basically to sort of to decumulate your cash, to spend money into the economy. I, I just don't think that's what we as citizens should be asking of any of us. Uh, and if you can spread the work a bit longer, you can then worry a little bit less about losing a couple of years for parental leave or losing a couple of years to go traveling or look after your elderly parents, whatever it might be. Hannah, let's talk about the childcare plans because those were a massive part of the budget today. What is Hunt promising? Well, as was widely trailed and everyone sort of knew was coming, we did see the extension of the 33 hours uh, offer to children who are one and two, but also, and this is the thing I think we weren't expecting, as young as nine months, which basically means once standard um, statutory maternity runs out, you have the option of 33 hours. 
it sounds great in theory because we're looking at being able to protect um, women's careers, uh, being able to return to the workforce as early as you choose, make it affordable to be able to do that, to continue your career as soon as you've had a child. Obviously, there's the small print. So along with this came the increase in funding um, for those hours for nurseries. That's really important to keep the the nursery sector open. How much that funding is, we have to wait and see because if it doesn't equal the needs of nurseries, it's simply there won't be the spaces to make this actually work. And there's also the reduction in the ratio for ch- uh, child carers to children to facilitate that to happen. So now um, uh, a nursery worker can look after five two-year-olds instead of four two-year-olds, which I have one two-year-old. Uh, she's really hard work when I'm just <laughs> one-on-one with her. Yeah. So this is a really intense request. Um it is being phased in over a few years, and I think that's really important, actually, because how the funding works and how those ratios work in practice is is needs to be assessed. And so it's it's good that it's going to be staged in. Um, also, and this is a really crucial point in terms of accessibility and fairness, people who are on universal credit are now going to be able to have their childcare costs paid up front so they don't have to suddenly find hundreds of pounds to put their child in for the full 40 hours or whatever they need for to have a full-time job up front before they're actually paid, before um, their, their benefit support comes through and so on. So it's, it is a really good proposal and I was really impressed actually. There are questions around some of the other things that were mentioned that hasn't had as much publicity I suppose this afternoon. Uh, yesterday, I should say, <laughs> expansion in uh, the wraparound care for school hours. This is really crucial. As someone who currently has two young children, you when you first have a child, you go through this whole process of thinking, oh, it'll get so much easier when they're at school. Hmm. The opposite is true. All of a sudden, you're wrangling about seven different people who are looking after your kid, grandparents, after school clubs, you know, wraparound from nurseries and so on. It's really tough. And those after school clubs, which are so important to retain people in work with, when they've got the um, school-aged kids, they're not very inclusive. Mm-hmm. They often don't take people with uh, sense, special educational needs, with disabilities, with um, other complex needs like food allergies and so on, because the ratios are so small. You know, there's like one teacher looking after an absolute gaggle of you know four, five, six, seven-year-olds in one room where they're all running riot. I think this needs really careful consideration it needs to become a statutory expectation a statutory obligation that you can have a place in that after school care um, so that it's an extension of the school day otherwise it simply won't do its job all you'll end up with is the people who already have a good after school place continuing to have that place and those who really need it for access reasons back to get back to work just won't be able to benefit from it so yeah um, things to be really pleased about and things to be more cautious about, I think. Yeah, I mean, wraparound care is also, they call it wraparound, it's the absolute minimum. Because uh, exactly. it means putting your kid in breakfast club at eight so you can commute in for nine yeah. and then leaving at five on the dot so you can be sure of getting back for six, which is when it closes. And, you know, people assume it's like loads of time. It's not. It's just no, it's like to enabling to you to work normal hours. The expectations of a yeah. better employer, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. This feels like the first time that the Tories have noticed parents for a while. Um, are they starting to get it, do you think? I think they, a little bit, I think they definitely understand it economically. They, they, are, they are starting to understand how much waste has gone on and disproportionately women's working opportunities during the, those years. And it shouldn't, we shouldn't just be talking about women, this is dads as well, but it, is, it has been disproportionately women's careers. And I do think they understand the, the cost of the economy and that's what they're working on. 
I'm not seeing much recognition about all of the other issues that come up around, um, you know, trying to retain a job if you are a working parent. Uh, there's been a lot of um, admiration of the campaigning organisation Pregnant Men Screwed, which has managed to get childcare right up the agenda. And that's really, really, they've done a great job. But they also talk about, rightly, the way employers still discriminate against women who are pregnant, women who have young children, around things like um, time you might need off for sick, covering sick days from school, all of those things. There's there's little recognition in government policy around levers on business to make sure that people who have caring responsibilities are included. And actually, let's admit it, it's caring responsibilities for ageing parents as well. It's whatever your caring responsibilities may be. There was nothing about that today, nothing about care, nothing about social care that I heard that was particularly convincing. So in terms of parenting in that sense, I don't see much uh, acknowledgement. It's all about the cost of, and jobs, filling jobs, growth, growth, growth. It's not about the social impact of being a parent. Well, there is. I mean, so it, what's what's funny is his growth policy basically amounts to, OK, this is what we're going to do about labour market participation and this is what we're going to do about investment. And the stuff that we've been talking about so far is essentially labour market participation. The investment stuff is fine. It's basically trying to get out from under the corporation tax rise to encourage sort of investment by businesses by letting them off. So, um, well, basically allowing it to pull it away from their profit level so that they can avoid that level of taxation. But it only lasts for three years. And the fact that it only lasts for three years is just part and parcel of the reason that we don't have any growth in the first place, which is that we don't provide the kind of environment that has a really sustained regulatory framework to it. We had we we got hit obviously um, after twenty ten, well, basically because of the financial crash. But then once you hit twenty sixteen, it all goes tits up, and th- and that isn't isn't Brexit. I mean, it, it isn't Brexit in that you could have come up with a soft Brexit option, decided it really early on, settled it in, and you would have kept it. But we didn't. We basically just went completely insane in a process that has continued really until now, changing policy. I mean, each administration comes in for a while. Their main enemy was the last Tory administration. You know, when you look at sort of Truss against Johnson, <laughs> yeah, and when you yeah. look at Sunak against Truss. So you're just creating this environment where everyone's going to be like, why the fuck would I invest here? I don't know what the fuck it's going to look like, you know, in a few months time, let alone years. So you've got all this, pe- we presume, pent up investment. Some of it would have gone overseas. And you can unleash some of it with, a three, with an attractive three year plan. But you can't do it for a really long time because you're just not giving people any confidence of what things are going to be like for a while. So that part, the investment part, I just don't think is particularly convincing that the labor market stuff is, is a really tough ask and this will do something for it but i don't think it's going to fix the problem in and of itself because really how are you going to tell like a quite well off 50 year old it's like go back to work and they're just like no fuck that i want to play golf <laughs> we could just abolish the golf courses though that would be fun i would support you wholeheartedly houses. in that i think if we replaced all the golf courses with mini golf much more space efficient, <laughs> much more fun. Also, fun, also the fun golf. Mini golf includes the stuff where you've got all the different levels. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like novel, novelty golf, like windmills, Brilliant. ramps, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Just shrink it down, uh, give people treadmills if they want the walking exercise, and then build houses on the rest. Let's not talk just about uh, the Conservatives, because, you know, uh, leader of the opposition responds to the budget. How did Keir Starmer do? He made a quite a good joke, I thought, about a lettuce, and then he followed it up with a quite a good joke about turnip as well uh, mm. which I won't try to reproduce Your definition of a good form. joke is quite different to mine I suspect <laughs> <laughs> He was he was, it was a good joke for Keir Starmer It is well done It sounded less forced than his usual and his usual jokes Okay fair enough You've set the bar very low there so I'm glad that you heard of it. Um 
I mean, it's fine. It's like famously a very tough ask because you just got given an extremely complicated technical document and mm. you have to respond to it and you can't really respond to it. So it's usually quite sort of fatuous. And it, and it was it was absolutely sort of fine for the situation that you're in. Now, I've got to say, no journalist really watches that response because at the moment that the chancellor sits down, you get the OBR report and all the documentation comes on. So when I was in the lobby that you just go off and you start picking up the documents. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm not, you just sit there online and you start reading the OBR. And what we've got into is this extraordinary dance. It's George Osborne, one of the few things you can credit him with, and it's a very important thing, and I'm very glad he did it, was the creation of the OBR. We'd be fucked without it. It's absolutely brilliant. I think Liz Truss demonstrated that when she got rid of it for a budget and destroyed our entire economy. And so when you read that document, document you, it's this extraordinary dance that we're in now if you get you get the chancellor stands up and it's poetry 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 everyone's going to be all right and then you sit down and read the obr document it's like really grim prose and everyone's fucked <laughs> so most of the time you're just quite distracted by the report rather than listening to the leader of the opposition hannah um universal support is going to help sick and disabled people back into work Hans says what is universal support because it's not at all the same thing as universal basic income as you were pointing out no i'm obsessed with the fact that they keep using this universal language i'm I'm convinced it's because there is now some cut through on universal basic income as a policy but then it's nothing like that and Mm. nothing to do with it but they like i think that they've worked out that people like the ideas it's really weird because it's not actually universal it's not universal same thing with universal credit right like it, it was very controversial because DWP had spent a big uh, amount of time discussing where to put the apostrophe in job seekers allowance. <laughs> because is it job seeker apostrophe s like this is you or a job seeker and this is your allowance but you better seek a job or was it job seekers apostrophe like it's a sort of general thing for generalized people and they'd really worried that without the apostrophe in the right place people wouldn't feel that personal sense of responsibility and so to then replace that with like universal universal that sounds like an entitlement can't have that it was super controversial but ian duncan smith uh, like him or love him uh, or despise him whatever. <laughs> like the only two options. I, I, got, I got my words confused. I, was, I apologise. I did once have uh, dinner with uh, In Duncan Smith and here's an interesting fact about In Duncan Smith. He and his wife uh, grow in their garden all the vegetables for their local pub. How weird is that? Anyway, um, the point is universal credit, it is weird, but I think that slightly predates universal basic income. But then there's this other movement in favour of universal basic services and I don't yeah. understand that either. No, well, I mean, the, the, it's the language of this. This is all for you. It's for everyone. But you're right. This universal support is not for everyone at all. It's very much specifically for disabled people. What is it? Um, as already mentioned, it's was scrapping of the work capability assessment. Brilliant thing. Double thumbs up to that. It was a disaster. Instead, people who are on some for, have some form of disability or health needs mean they can't access work. Currently, they'll be asked to describe what they think that they can do rather than the government assessing them by some horrible um, sort of faceless bureaucracy deciding what they can do for them. So that sounds good, but what is it in practice? We don't know. So again, caution about small print. Then there's this £4,000 a year package of support to find work, but there's no description about what that's going to be yet. So it's not four grand of cash to help you I don't know, whatever you might need to job hunt that you decide you need to spend it on. It's not that. It's a, a, a package of measures that is worth £4,000 per person to help them back into work. And it's supposed to be a kind of job matching scheme as well. So that if you say I could work from home, maybe I can, you know, I can do 16 hours a week on, I can use Zoom, I can use, but I can't, I'm, I have perhaps mobility um, issues, so I can't work outside of the home. This is what I think I can do. 
they will match you with a vacancy, an active vacancy in the economy that meets your specific needs around your disability. That sounds great, but that also sounds incredibly expensive to me. I think that I'm not sure where the kind of the tech, the the support is for that kind of bespoke matching service. If they genuinely have a brilliant plan up their sleeve that they are holding on for the election, great. I'd love to see that. But what that 4,000 a year is actually spent on is what will make it work or sink, I think. I mean, meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of teachers are on strike this week. There's no tube. Rail workers are off for two days. Junior doctors have held a three-day strike. Was there any sense of this in the budget or what the government plans to do about it? Because so we're in perma-strike mode now, aren't we? The only thing that was said was right at the beginning when Hunt first stood up, was he obviously mentioned it because it's on everyone's minds. You can't not mention it today when all of those you know, industries that you've just listed, services that you've just listed uh, are out. He basically said that the reason they're all on strike is because of inflation, um, because salaries don't match up to the cost of living anymore. That's not true. They're on strike because public sector pay across all these sectors has been hit by a decade or more of austerity. And there was no acknowledgement that this situation is caused by government rather than a response to the wider economic crisis. So is there an, a, any kind of admission that they've got it wrong and got to find a deal? No. And do they think – it seems like they think they can, inf, they can control inflation and make the problem just go away. And I think that's incredibly naive. Does anyone here think that's even possible? I mean, the, th- yeah. the thing that got me – and this, this, you know, listening to the IFS was just looking at – the amount that it costs them to keep on freezing fuel duty and putting off the further change of urban rise is about six billion. Now, if you wanted to deal with both teachers and nurses, the concerns there around pay, you could take care of that, help them, but also help the public who are not getting those services at the moment with that six billion. So, I mean, ultimately, just think, as, as a set of priorities, I mean, what is happening there? You know, you have to talk about it clearly. Is you, you know, you're giving to motorists what would have otherwise gone to those to those workers. Now, that is a very clear political decision. And this kind of get-out clause of, oh, it's all inflation, it's all inflation, we can't do it, we'd stimulate more, is trying to mask what is ultimately a very clear political decision and the wrong one. Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. This one's from Megan. Hello, Megan. On a recent trip abroad, I found myself closing my eyes in a long queue for passports, imagining a sign saying Brexit voters to the back of the line. So childish. It felt quite good. What... (laughs) What mostly harmless but oh-so-satisfying rule would you impose, even if for only a moment, to give yourself a little ray of naughty sunshine? So mine would be, back to my favourite hobby horse, housing, I would make anyone who wanted to be a landlord demonstrate that they had lived as a tenant for at least a year before they would be allowed to be responsible for renting out property. Because Hmm. if you've never actually been someone's tenant, how can you possibly understand all the difficulties? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's right. It's not not fun. It's not as amusing as our letter writer here. (laughs) But I think it would genuinely make a difference. (laughs) So that was what I would do. Yeah, I think I would go back to the golf courses, actually. I think I would have a compulsory purchase order on all the golf courses. (laughs) And all the golf courses would be built on... Uh, in a lovely way, um, and because they're just vast tracts of land. If you actually look at a map of, 
you know, say London because that's where I live, but it's true for other cities as well. And you look at where a golf course, massive tracts of land, often in very pleasant parts of the city, being used to knock small balls about at the weekend. It is just the worst possible use of land that I can imagine in the worst possible place. Um, I, I, I have real problems with golf. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Polly, is there anything that springs to mind? That you... uh, uh, free therapy for you about, <laughs> about the golf would be an important uh, step. I'm trying to think. I've got so many ridiculous hobby horses. I would like to change how MPs are paid. Really, really, really irritates me that an MP, some of them work like 90 hours a week. They are unbelievably dedicated servants of their constituency. They do like basically their sort of social worker in chief as well as like legislator. And then there's others who basically do absolutely nothing, uh, including former prime ministers, who just sort of ex officio member of parliament. I think they should get paid for actual work. A sort of like de minimis, maybe the minimum wage for just literally being the MP. And then they should actually get paid for doing committees, doing legislation, Tabling questions, uh, probably not tabling questions. I like they that. just get their researchers to do it. This is great. Like that's how councillors get paid, right? It's like yeah. you, there's a minimum minimum amount for being a councillor, and then like if you actually do some work, you go on the planning committee. Extra for chairing the planning committee. It's just absolutely nuts to me that you get paid either a shed ton of money to be an MP or about eight pounds an hour. Yeah, and I mean, then they wouldn't have to go and do gigs on GB News, would they? Oh, we should also ban that. Yeah, that would that would also totally. I mean, they should not be allowed to do well paid media jobs. But it's just you, you can't. It's just... No, it's the it's the one with like two MPs, husband and wife, interviewing other MPs. Yeah, you just think like we. This is this is through the <laughs> looking glass, the jumping over a shark stuff and talk right? to each other there. But I mean, on the plus side, look, if we didn't have these guys do it, we wouldn't have gotten the Dean Dorsey's tweet the other day, <laughs> which was one of the greatest tweets that I've ever seen in my life. It was, why should Gary Lineker, a TV presenter, be involved in politics? We talk about that on my TV show. On <laughs> it's like, fuck me! This is what it's like if you have literally no self-awareness whatsoever. Now, will the real Rishi Sunak please stand up? He's a safe pair of hands. But he's also ramming a bill through Parliament that deports people seeking asylum to Rwanda. And he's just coughed up tens of thousands of pounds because the Yorkshire electricity grid had to upgrade its equipment to heat his private pool. Luckily, he's able to spare 63 million in the budget so public pools can pay their energy bills too. Wise timing, Rishi. (laughs) Five months into the job, what do we know about Sunak? Ian, if someone asked you what Sunakism is, what would you say? I couldn't do it. I can't. I can't do it. It's almost, you know, I've been puzzled about it for months now. And I'm just at that point where I've stopped giving a fuck. <laughs> like, and I sort of don't even want to think about it anymore. Because because it, it keeps on coming in these sort of double whammies. You know, first, I mean, there was the completely unnecessary decision to get behind the EU retained law bill, which is legislatively a, a genuinely insane thing to have said. To just say, we're just going to take a shitload of law. Don't know what the fuck it is. We're going to switch it off on a set date and then find out what happens. It's, it's a quite, quite mad way to behave. And not very technocratic. You know what I mean? Like, if, if your main thing is, I come in, I figure it out, I'm going to fix stuff. You don't do stuff like that. Then he comes up with the protocol stuff. And the protocol stuff was genuinely better than I thought. I don't think it's half as good as everyone's making out. And I don't think that, you know, their ability to reject laws is going to 
ever be used, especially not in an effective way. But nevertheless, it was impressive when he got something out of it. And then he flips and does the illegal migration bill. The illegal migration, I mean, putting aside all of the morality of it, it is a set of policies that they know will not work yeah. and that are not designed to work. And that even when even when anonymous Tory sources, I mean, one of them was talking to Sky yesterday, sort of trying to explain it, going, oh, we know, we know, but, you know, this way we can at least blame the French and blame international lawyers for stuff, whereas now we can't. It's just like, yeah, or you could fix the fucking problem, which it is within your power to fix by just processing the claims. All you've got to do is process the goddamn claims. So on that, just on the thing of, is he someone who actually wants to make things work? Or is he someone that just wants to keep on setting fire to shit and then blaming foreigners and Europeans and blah, blah, blah for it? He, he started to switch day after day. And he said, I, I am still, 80% of me is still puzzled by what he fundamentally is. But I am every day losing at least two or three percentages of that puzzlement and just thinking, like, I don't care. I do just want you to fuck off now. He visited San Diego this week and he came back with a stash of muffins and Mexican Coke. <laughs> not, not that kind. But not in a good way. No, yeah. no. Well, in a good way. Yeah. Joe Biden called him a Stanford man. So, you know, they were clearly getting on. Is there something distinctly American about the Sunak worldview? Oh, and it's just sort of international money. And he's, a, he's, he's quite sort of Condé Nast traveller, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a citizen of nowhere. I mean, this is the yeah, she you know, is. Theresa yes, May is. used to go on. <laughs> About these citizens of nowhere. He is a citizen of nowhere. I mean, he's... <laughs> yeah, well, and there's, there's a sort of manner to him that, that I am possibly familiar with from, from those... That, that, you know, you live in certain places and you're sort of aware of them, but you're not tremendously invested in them and you haven't necessarily taken on the sort of small elements of behaviour or humour or language that you would have in any of them. So, no, I, I think that's what he is. I don't think it's particularly America. I think it's a more sort of global rich thing that he is. Polly, does Sunak have a social purpose, would you say? I mean, does he have a mission to expand it out? And if so, what, what is that mission? I think, I think he's an interesting character. And I remain interested, perhaps a bit more than, than Ian. I, I think, I think yeah, but there's, there's clearly a, con- a conflict there. I think he does... When he talks about yeah the sort of Silicon Valley entrepreneurship stuff, I think that's authentic. He does you, his uh, his lecture, the the May's lecture, I think it was on on the economy was good, solid, thoughtful. I mean, I, I didn't agree with it, but again, we've had a series of prime ministers who like you you just didn't think really deserved to get out of bed in the morning, mm. and mm. so to have a prime minister that hey, this is interesting, I disagree with some of it, feels like. <laughs> Massive upgrade. Um, I, I think he, he wants to be the prime minister. And it, it's hard to really resent somebody for that. And he doesn't want to lose at the next election. And I think he is he has put some people around him who are making the case for some of this more kind of Linton Crosby-ish right wing stuff. And he has been persuaded, rightly or wrongly, that that stuff is essential for retaining his ability to stay in power to do the stuff that I think he's much more actually interested in, which is to do with economic growth and innovation and entrepreneurship and and stuff that, yeah, is sort of more old school, international, classical, liberal economic stuff. The trouble that we have is, I, I, you're undoubtedly right, like he definitely thinks that way. This is the stuff I want to do, but here's the red meat. I've got to throw that to the blah, blah, blah. The trouble is that the red meat corrodes the bits that he wants to do. Yeah, so if we're talking today about how do we get business investment, one way not to get business investment is to go, here's a bill that's just going to set fire to a bunch of laws that we may or may not have found by the time we hit deadline. That's exactly the kind of volatile chaos, policy chaos that inhibits investment. So he can't keep these two things separate from each other. They impact on one another. 
Hannah, we haven't seen a big backbench rebellion yet, despite some threats of that. No. It feels it feels as though Sunak has actually tamed the ERG. Uh, do you think that's going to last? I don't. Has he tamed it? I think. I mean, Ian said earlier that the whole party, the whole policy agenda, has tanked so far to the right now that it's. You know, we might be. You might feel on one hand like it's tamed. Actually, is it just that it's? Yeah, they've got that they want objectives met. Yeah. You know, got, <laughs> they don't have anything particular to to be shouting about right now. Also. It, exactly, just as, as we were just talking about then, as well about the character of, of Sunak and who he's kind of speaking to, he does look competent when you compare him to you know predecessors. So, do you want to be the lunatic fringe shouting at the one who finally looks competent when you're heading you know less than eighteen months into a general election? They're, they may have a modicum of self awareness about that. That you know, let's just have a, a period of vague stability. Um, before the small boats policy comes crashing down on them. I, I don't know. So I, I think it's more about them biding their time than any kind of conquering of, of that faction. Sunak's popularity ratings have gone up a bit, but the Tories haven't. Mm. You know, they're still stuck yeah. 20 points behind in the polls. Why do you think that is? Well, Sunak, for all the reasons that we've just said, that it's good to have a prime minister who looks like they're reading policy documents and doing some homework and uh, having a, a, a thoughtful conversations about, you know, the global economy and where we fit in that. The flip side, and Hunt has added to that today, I think. It was actually really refreshing to watch a budget speak that wasn't batshit. It, you know, <laughs> again, you don't agree. I, I don't agree with every policy in it. Mm-hmm. I, Particularly, um, the the motorist one is a good one. And uh, why do we always have to talk about fucking potholes every time? <laughs> if I never hear about potholes again, I'll be fine with that. I, I know. So that as a cyclist, I'm anti-pothole. They do bother me. However, I <laughs> what the hell are we doing? Talk about in a national parliament? This is like, what I mean. Yeah, local of course, I, they, they're annoying. They bother me too, but. I don't want to hear that on the budget speech. Just get on with the really important stuff about running the country. So, yeah, but but Hunt today looked sensible and it felt like the grown-ups were in charge. So I, the difference between the, those figures and then the party is that I think that the public aren't going to move on from the trust quartet thing, the Stanley Johnson scandal over the last couple of weeks, you know, with Boris popping up claiming he's going to put his entire family in the Lords. I think... <laughs> I just think that we, as a as a population, we're just not going to forget that stuff in ten minutes. So, and I'm thank goodness because you know for me that means hopefully we're still on track for a Labour. <laughs> yes, it's a difficult balance, isn't it, between um, you know wanting competence but not too much. Yeah, <laughs> actually want a change of government. You don't want to give them enough time to yes. actually become electable again. Your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts.
It's nearly the end of the show. So what are the stories that have fallen under the radar this week? Ian, what have you been watching? Right. I don't know if this really counts as under the radar, but I do feel that I've said that for every under the radar I've ever been asked. Um, I just want to talk about uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever winning costume design at the Oscars. Sorry, just bear with, just bear with me. Um, so I went to Ruthie Carter, who's just become the first black woman to ever win multiple Oscars. What really struck, and that film didn't get a very good reception here and people didn't really care about it or like it very much. But from uh, like my Latin American perspective, it was the first time I'd ever seen sort of indigenous culture represented in terms of the fashion, especially that, that very beautiful turquoise that is used all the time in, in especially Mayan cultures. And just the way it was put into the outfits was this astonishingly beautiful thing that was also communicating the political ideas in the film through action sequences and through the spectacle. It was quite extraordinary and no one really commented on it. No one really cared. And in Oscars that I found pretty sort of uninspiring overall, I was really, really fucking glad that that film won the Oscar for precisely that thing that she did because in its, in its own way, it was an act of absolute genius. I'm going to stop my cynicism about uh, about these no, DC Marvel movies and and yeah, bow to your superior judgment on this issue. Hang on, you've got to at least differentiate between DC and Marvel movies. You have no idea how bad it is. Just the other day, she was like, "I know the new Marvel <laughs> film called Shazam is coming out," and you just, <laughs> I sit there like cringing out of them. Like, what's the point? Why I even saw it on the bus. Uh, I saw it on a bus, and and my son pointed out to me. He's like, "Yeah." Right, okay. It's like getting Disney and Warner Brothers confused. I mean, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you, Ros. I'm like, I'm lost. They're, they're all the same. Yeah, they're all the same. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're incredibly different. But anyway, we, we just brush past these things. Okay. okay. <laughs> Polly, how about you? Well, so I was thinking about this when you were talking about uh, Rishi Sunak's swimming pool. But there was uh, a piece of uh, news this week from a, a computer data center people who are using the excess heat from their computer data center to heat. A local swimming pool. Mm-hmm. And I love this, right? Because data centers get really hot. It's one of the reasons why, like, Bitcoin is destroying the planet, is all of this computer programming. But it's, there's loads of it, like, warehouses full of stuff, and they produce all this heat, and then they have these really expensive cooling systems. And then, as we know, swimming pools, very expensive to heat. And in fact, lots of local swimming pools are having to close down or reduce their hours because they can't afford with the energy bills. And so what they haven't done, I promise, is just put the computers in the swimming pool because <laughs> I think that might be a little bit risky from an electricity perspective. But what they have is connected the cooling system of the computers to the heating system of the swimming pool. And I'm like, I just love this. I love how much innovation is going into like tackling the climate crisis, the energy crisis, a reminder that, you know, one of the greatest renewable resources we have is like human ingenuity. And, you know, it's not fast enough. There's so much more to do. But there are so many amazing ideas out there. And and just something, and again, the picture I have in my head is like computers in a swimming pool. And I know that's not it, but I still, I just, I love it. It filled me with hope. Remember that word? Hope. 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 Well, oh, speaking of hope, yeah, there's a lovely report out this week by uh, More in Common, another think tank, um, although it's kind of a campaigning group, more think tank, but let's not go into that, uh, about uh, Ukrainian refugees. And it's basically talked to people who hosted Ukrainian refugees and talked to, uh, and said how they felt about it. And uh, quite an overwhelming majority have been positive about it and said, yeah, this is great. And what's more, I'd happily host an Afghan refugee as well if I got the chance. And, mm. and that's very heartwarming. There were some complaints about what happened when Ukrainian refugees cooked for them and they wasn't quite as tasty as they were expecting <laughs> but we did like the borscht one said <laughs> so that, but on the other hand more um more perhaps depressingly the new statesman did an investigation on the same subject and found that there had been unfortunately uh, some some 
bad exploitation of Ukrainian refugees, you know, having to deals being done of sex for accommodation and uh, some some poor treatment. So I guess it's partly who you talk to, but there are some good stories as well as some deeply worrying stories coming out of that. Annie, how about you? Well, to come back to hope, I don't know, this might fill you with hope or it might not, depending on your perspective. Venice is calling for people who can remote work remotely to go and live there. Um, they're short of younger people. They want to boost oh. their economy. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> How young is young? I, I reckon it's under 50. Cause oh, we're yeah, yeah. Working age. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they want to revitalise their local economy. They want to, yeah, they do specifically mention young people, but with the remote, rise in remote working, people being able to just, you know, take their laptop and hold a job down from another country, they are basically putting the call out saying, come and stay here. They're sorting out accommodation and, um, it's, yeah, big part of their um, city strategy. I thought it was really interesting because it came, I saw it on the same day as I saw a report from LinkedIn. So data gathered from a survey of LinkedIn users. So I'm not sure how rigorous this is. But it did find that one in three people said that if they were told by their boss that they had to go back into full-time working in the office, they would just quit their job. And also six in 10 are already planning to move jobs this year because of various requirements that bosses have put in place around location and hours and, and, and all that kind of flexibility stuff post-pandemic. So it really is just a story about how it's only three years since the first lockdown, but work has changed and that's it. There is no going back. And as much as companies are really trying their best to recreate where we were, I think this is just proof that it's never going to happen. And let's all go and you know hang out on the Grand Canal. Yes, just to let my, uh, my bosses know, I'm happy to host Oh God, What Now, Venice, at any point. <laughs> Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Just search Oh God, What Now, Patreon to find out how. Hello, and a huge thank you from me to Adam Corfi. Adam Sardar and Jared Bradley. All the best and hello from me to Avril Parks, Matthew Armistead and Marco Solanke. And finally, best wishes from me and many thanks to James Cooper, Elizabeth Ava Van Leach and Philippa Hammond. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Ross Taylor with Hannah Fern and Ian Dunt. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. At the Oscars this week, Hugh Grant put on his best performance since impersonating Tony Blair in Love Actually. Questioned about how he was enjoying himself on the champagne. Terrible, by the way, his best performance was in Paddington too. Yeah, there, there wasn't a version of the script that, that claimed that, but I disagreed. Oh wow, you edited it. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I think his best moment in that movie came at the end with the dance. But before that, I felt he just wasn't really. He was phoning it in. Questioned about how he was enjoying himself on the champagne-coloured carpet on Sunday, Grant was disarmingly honest. Hugh Grant, you are a veteran of the Oscars. And you've been here a few times. Yeah. What's your favorite thing about coming to the Oscars? Um, well, uh, <laughs> it's fascinating. It's uh, it's uh, the, the whole of humanity is here. It's uh, <laughs> it's Vanity Fair. What are you most excited to see tonight? Um, 
Not, not, no, no one in particular. Okay, well, what are you wearing tonight then? Uh, just my suit. Your suit? Who yeah. made your suit? You didn't make it. Um, I can't remember. My tailor. That's okay. Yeah. Ta shout out to the tailor. Yeah. Um, so tell me, what does it feel like to be in Glass Onion? It was such an amazing film. I really loved it. I love a thriller. How fun is it to shoot something like that? Well, I'm barely in it. I'm in it for about three seconds. Yeah, but yeah. still, you showed up and you had fun, right? Uh, almost. Okay, all yeah. right. <laughs> okay. I've seen lots of people saying Grant is just plain rude here. Ian, did he go too far? I don't know about too far, but it's, I always find it a bit annoying when the, when the sort of Hollywood celebs do that. Jim Carrey does it sometimes when he sort of goes to things and then sort of talks in this kind of mock intellectual way. About that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Mm -hmm.